Let's open up your Bibles, please, to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. This is uh, lesson 149B, Comfort for Troubled Hearts. All right, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time and then get into the Word. Father God, thank you for this gorgeous day that you have given to us. Thank you for everything, as the poem reminded us. Uh, not only should we be thankful at Thanksgiving time, but we should be thankful for all our many blessings that you have so abundantly provided for us in this world in which you have placed us. Even though it's sin-cursed, it is so beautiful, and you have just taken so such good care of us, especially, Lord, in sending your Son to die for for us so that we might live eternally in the place you are preparing for us even now, which we can't even imagine. I hasn't even seen or hard imagined the things that you are preparing for us in our heavenly home. And we long to go there and see all the beauties, but most of all to see you face to face, Lord Jesus, and to be in your holy presence without sin or tears or sorrow or troubles of any kind. Again, we cannot imagine that because our minds are also cursed and, and full of sin, and it just goes beyond what we can even visualize or imagine. But thank you for this wonderful hope that, that does truly comfort our hearts when we are troubled about, about the cares and concerns of this life. Now, Lord, as we again look at your very, very critical words spoken to your disciples and also to us on that last night of your earthly life, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would use your words to minister to our hearts, to speak to us in, in whatever appropriate way each individual heart needs to be spoken to. We know you can do it, and we just uh, thank you ahead of time for what you're going to accomplish here this morning. Help your servant to think clearly and to only say those things, Lord, that would would elevate you and lift you up. And um, may whatever is accomplished here this morning truly be for your honor and your glory, for you alone deserve all the praise. We pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. In our look last week, which was at part one, Heavenly Home Promised, in our Comfort for Troubled Hearts series. We looked at just the first three verses, didn't we, of John chapter 14, which began the body of the Lord's final discourse, also known as his farewell discourse, or what was another name? Upper Room Discourse or Valedictorian Discourse. But he began his Upper Room Discourse um, in... Actually, the introduction for it began in chapter 13, verse 31, but we began the body of that last discourse last week when the Lord gave the divine remedy for what kind of trouble? Heart. Heart trouble. He spoke words of comfort regarding the heavenly future that enable the believer in God and in Jesus to be consoled living in this present world full of sin. Does truth about the future help to comfort you in the present? It does me, and it should really all of us. If you know where you're going, <laughs> it should comfort you. Well, today we're going to look at another three verses. We're really moving at a rapid pace, right? Last week, three verses. Today, three verses. These are very critical verses. Chapter 14, verses 4, 5, and 6. And this second part of our study is titled, The Heavenly Highway Proclaimed. So we looked at the heavenly home promised, and today it's the heavenly highway 
proclaim. And this section contains one of the most critical statements in all of Scripture because Jesus declared in unmistakable terms that the only way a person can get to God the Father is how? Through Him, by Him, by Jesus Christ, Him and Him alone. What did He say? Let's all say it together. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I'm always very impressed with your memory skills. Very good. Did you all memorize the first three? Actually, I think most of you had that memorized last week. First three verses. Very important to hide those verses in your heart. I'm going to sidetrack for a little while, but I wonder how aware you may be of the growing proliferation of books, even in Christian bookstores, and of pastors and churches that there are out there in the world today that propagate and have strongly influenced much of what was once fundamental evangelical Christianity. They have infiltrated with their postmodernism, it's called, and uh, doctrinal minimalism. What does that sound like? Let's minimize doctrine. It's called doctrinal minimalism. And there's, have you heard of the emergent church movement? They can't even define it because there's so many various forms of this emergent church movement. But fundamental evangelical Christianity has been inundated, infiltrated with these new trends. And a common theme in these post-evangelical points of view is for Christians to be less dogmatic. Do you know what dogmatic means? Less rigid, less structured, less less, uh, firm. For us to be less dogmatic and less aggressive about our convictions that we should meet together with other worldviews and have conversations. Big word in these books and in these trends is the word civil. Civil conversations with them in which we stress common ground, look for common ground and mutual goodwill. Their concern is that unbelievers think of Christians as being arrogant and intolerant, heard that word, haven't you? And uh, small-minded, narrow-minded, when we make such declarations as this, the Bible is the infallible word of God. Ooh, we are so intolerable when we say that. Or when we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And when we say statements like, Jesus alone is Lord, these growing trends within Christendom are particularly embarrassed when Christians like you and I say that other religions are false. Rather, they say that we should be embracing and adapting to the shift in secular attitudes 
toward faith. In other words, because we live in a vastly changing, diversified, you hear that word a lot when you turn on the news, because we live in this vastly changing, diversified, global culture, certainty, dogmatism, about spiritual matters comes across as either naive or arrogant. So we Christians should be prepared and willing to make concessions. We should be willing to make compromises. And this is being advocated. And I'm not just talking about something little. It's prevalent. It's everywhere. So we Christians should be um, prepared, they would tell us. We should be prepared and willing to make these concessions. And this is being uh, promoted or advocated as the ultra-minimalist approach where we are to peel back the list of essential doctrines in order that we not be so offensive. Are you following me? No, I'm talking kind of big here today, but everybody following me. And this is the approach today of the Western intellectual world. We are living in what they call postmodern times. I don't know where that why they get that word, but this is the approach. Certainty and conviction and absolutes are academically out of style. You know, they're not, they're not uh, politically correct, <laughs> particularly when it comes to spiritual and moral matters. You know, they make fun of politicians who want to reverse Roe versus Wade and say they're just far-right, you know, fanatics. Um, so certainty and conviction and absolutes are academically out of style, particularly when it comes to spiritual and moral matters. The new heresy is that of dogmatism. And there was no more dogmatic statement to come from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ than his words in John 14:6, the words we just all said together. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He said, right? Oh, shame on him. My goodness. He should have been more tolerant of the Buddhists. And he should have been more tolerant of the Indian mystics and the uh, Greek philosophers and the pantheon of uh, Roman and Greek gods and goddesses of his time, right? According to postmodernists, they would say, shame on him. He was so dogmatic. Now, remember... It is both hypocritical and irrational to call Jesus with your lips, to call him Lord with your lips, but to defy his lordship by your life or by compromising on his very words. You know, you call him Lord on the one hand, but then you say, well, shame on him for saying that. He was just too arrogant and too dogmatic and he shouldn't have said that, you know, that's intolerant of him. That's hypocritical. And this is a danger that really has more sinister implications than just plain old outright atheism. I'd rather have atheists, you know, saying that I don't believe in a God, I don't believe in Jesus, so who cares what he said, than have one who says he's a Christian and yet denying the very words of God. That's more dangerous, that's more evil, that's more sinister because it grossly violates the truth while pretending to believe it. It's no accident that we have already found out in our um, 
our study of the Lord's life, that his harshest words ever were reserved for institutionalized religious hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, right? Who did he speak his harshest words to? The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the religious hypocrites. He waged an aggressive public controversy against the chief religious hypocrites of his day, which lasted throughout his entire earthly ministry for three and a half years. And that is really why he was crucified. They hated him for exposing them. It was not that long ago that fundamental evangelical, the fundamental evangelical movement was known for two primary theological convictions upon which they would not budge. It was two dogmatic convictions about fundamental evangelicalism. One was their conviction regarding the absolute accuracy and authority of the Bible, the scriptures. You know, the re- that this book is the revealed word of the living God and not the product of, of mere human imagination or ingenuity, right? That's one of the fundamentals. That's why they're called fundamentalists. And I is one. I'm a fundamentalist. Um, that this is God's word. This is our final authority for faith and practice. The second conviction of evangelical fundamentalism is that the gospel sets forth the only possible way of salvation from sin and judgment, which is by grace, through faith, in and only in who? The Lord Jesus. Now, tragically, the term evangelical Christian has become very muddied. There's a lot of people who call themselves now fundamentalists that are not fundamentalists. And it's become a sort of a negative word, too, because a lot of people will associate fundamental, fundamentalist is the Islams. What what am I trying to say? Fundamental is is the Islamic movements, you know, those into jihad and with fundamental Christianity. So it's become negative in that respect. But far too many within Christendom who are now calling themselves evangelicals or fundamentalists Uh, may use that term, but they have been drinking strongly from the spirit of the age, and they have stepped back. They've taken a giant step backward from discussing those two basic tenets of the faith, and they've done that in order to be more tolerant and more politically correct and more civil. And so they don't talk so much about the absolute authority of the scripture, every jot and tittle. And they don't talk so much about Jesus being the only way of salvation. They strive to distance themselves from any hint of being called, you know, fundamentalists. They'll go along with that term, really, evangelicals, although they're not the way we would define evangelicals even anymore. Zeal for the essentials of the the doctrines of biblical Christianity has become almost as unacceptable among these evangelicals as it is with the world. And these evangelicals are really what you would call post-evangelicals. I know this is getting confusing, but anyone with zeal for the fundamentals of the faith is seen as a little bit too overboard, you know, fanatic. So they distance themselves from people like that. 
nothing comes across as more barbaric to them than a zealous, true, evangelical fundamentalist who stands firm without apology on the absolute authority of every word of Scripture. Still following me? If you believe what I believe, you're a fanatic. <laughs> and you're a bar- barbarian. You know, you're a lowlife. You're not, your brain just hasn't been evolutionized enough to the global culture of multidiversity. <laughs> we need to be reprogrammed, the New Agers would say. The popular call today is for ecumenical tranquility. You know, bring everybody together uh, in one big brotherhood and do it tranquilly, you know, and not be judgmental. Non-judgmental transparency is what they call it. And perpetual civility, friendly dialogue with those of all faiths, of all faiths. And those who demonstrate passion about what they believe are out, just out of touch with the modern world. Only the low-brow, anti-intellectual would spout words that someone else's beliefs are heresy and that his own beliefs are the absolute truth. So, hello, all you lowlifes. <laughs> but you know what? The core truths of Scripture and Scripture itself, the Word of God, have always been under attack. You know what? This is actually nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. This is not really new. The main battleground upon which Satan wages his cosmic war against God is and always has been since the Garden of Eden. The war has always been a conflict between truth and error. The chief strategy of Satan's spiritual warfare, and that's what this is. It's a spiritual warfare. His chief strategy has always been to confuse and to deny and to corrupt the truth with as much fallacy, you know, even even righteous civil sounding and dressed as an angel of the light kind of fallacy as possible. He's always wanted to throw in just enough poison to confuse people and to deny the truth, to corrupt the truth. The battle for truth, the battle for truth is extremely serious for our next generations. This is warfare, ladies. You need to have your sword, you know, and know why you believe what you believe. But we're in a battle, and it's not going to get any better. We will be ridiculed. Yes, we will be ridiculed. And we will be mocked. And we will be scorned. And we will be held in low esteem by both the world and even by most church people today. Have you ever found that some of the worst battles you encounter are within the church? Christendom? You expect it from the world, but sometimes it really, you know, some churches you can go to and stand up for what you believe, and you're looked at like, whoa, where did you come from? (laughs) We must be careful to remember that our fight, this is something important, our fight is not against people, is it? Our fight is not against people. We are to be civil with people. Now, when a Jehovah's Witness or somebody Mormon comes to your door, don't be too civil, 
You know, don't don't say, come on in. You shouldn't even wish them to have a good day. I never, they always say to me, I met one at a gas station a couple of weeks ago. I went, just went out to pump my gas, and this woman came walking straight for me. I knew the minute she started coming to me because I saw that little book in her hand. <laughs> and she was real pleasant. Oh, isn't it a gorgeous day? And I knew exactly where she was going. And she said, I, you know, I'd like to share this magazine with you. And I said, well, I'm not going to take it, lady, because I believe in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I know that you don't. She said, oh, I don't want to get into a conflict with you, but I want you to have a good day. And I said, well, I wish I could say that to you, but I don't want you to have a good day. (laughs) That sounds mean, doesn't it? But you know what a good day for her would be? Proselytizing someone. And you're not to even wish them good tidings, good day. I'm sure she thought I was rude, but... (laughs) We, we have to remember, though, that our fight is not against people. It is against falsehood. Our fight is against error. Our goal in holding fast to the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith is the liberation of people from the strongholds of lies and false teachings and satanic ideologies. These things are what hold them prisoners. They're captives. We need, our job is to liberate them. You know, if you shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free. They're in bondage to Satan's lies. Okay, that's my preaching. Let's get back to the lesson. Before we look at the Lord's monumental and, yes, very, very dogmatic statement of John 14, 6, we're going to need to look at the verses that immediately preceded it. His men, as you know, had been very shaken up after he revealed the fact of his impending departure. With all of his talk about a betrayer and their desertion from him and even a denial of him by their leader and then his words about his blood being shed for them and his body being given as he instituted a new memorial deliverance for them to celebrate in his remembrance. After all that, they got the message. They got the message that it was clear he was leaving. He was going to leave them. That's about all they got. They got. They understood he was leaving, and they were devastated. So he comforted them with his promises. We looked at last week of, of John 14, verses 1 to 3. He would depart, yes, but it was with a purpose. It was in order to get things ready for them uh, to join him. Where? In his father's house. And he would return to personally escort them. He would receive them unto himself and take them back to where he was in his father's house. And he was having dwelling places for each one of them, you know, so that they they would live in the father's house with him and they would be there eternally with him. And then in verse 4, he said in uh, uh, modern English, well, I'll read it first in the King James. He says, and whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. So in other words, he's saying where I'm going, you know, you know where I'm going. And you know the way to where I'm going. That's what he says in verse 4. And then, I might as well read the whole scripture. After he said that, then Thomas, look at verse 5. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And then the monumental statement of verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So look back at verse 4. Why did the Lord say that his disciples knew where he was going? 
Well, it was because he had just told them where he was going. He was going to prepare a place for them where? In his father's house, exactly. Even though the only other time that he ever used that term, the father's house, was in reference to the temple, when he said, you've made my father's house into a den of thieves, we can be sure that they did not think he was talking about departing to the temple and building permanent dwelling places onto the temple. I'm sure they didn't think that when he said, I'm going to my father's house and prepare dwelling places for you. They didn't think, oh, he's going to march over to the temple and build places onto it for us. I don't think the authorities would go for that anyway to you. Besides, he had already predicted to them that the temple would be utterly destroyed. Remember when he said that? Which um, they couldn't fathom that happening, but uh, he wouldn't go to a place to build places when he had said that that place would be destroyed. So I'm sure they didn't think he was talking about the temple. Plus, he had said that they could not yet follow him to where he was going, wherever it was. And they certainly could have followed him if he just went to the temple, right? They knew how to get to the temple. And Thomas would never have said that they didn't know the way there because they did know the way to the temple. The fact is, the Father's house was a new term for heaven. Had never been used before for heaven. So the disciples were confused. They had never heard that term for heaven. And if they did think he was talking about heaven, which they may have speculated he was, how could Jesus set up his kingdom on earth, which is what the Messiah was supposed to do, and they did believe he was the Messiah, how could he set up the kingdom on earth if he just left them and went to heaven? You know, you can understand. Try to always put yourself in their places. They didn't have the advantage of the New Testament. And so they're confused. The Lord also said to his men that they not only knew where he was going, but they knew the way to get there. He told them, you know where I'm going, and you know the way. He knew they knew the way, but they did not realize that they knew the way. <laughs> Following, I'm really being confusing for a Monday morning, right? Drink some more coffee. <laughs> they knew the way. He knew they knew the way. Because he knew they had already placed their faith in him, right? And he is the way to the Father's house. So they were already on the way to the Father's house. They just didn't know it yet. They didn't realize it. Now, if we peek ahead, if you look over at chapter 17 and look at verse 8, this is the high priestly prayer. Look at verse 8. These are words the Lord is going to speak in prayer to his Father in just a few hours from where we are in the upper room. And uh, he said to his father, for I have given unto them. Who's he talking about? His disciples. All right. So he's talking about his disciples. For I have given unto them the words which you, father, gave me to give to them. I've given them the words you gave me. And what's the next phrase? And they have received them. They received the words you gave me to speak to them, father. And they have known surely, surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didn't send me. You see, he's saying what they believed. We know they were already saved. They knew he came from his Father in heaven. They knew that God gave, gave him the words that he spoke to them. And they surely received them and they believed them. So they did know the way, didn't they? They didn't know they knew the way, but they did know the way. They were already on the way. 
All right, you can go back to John 14. If they believe that God had sent him, which according to the Lord, they did, and they knew that he referred to God as his father, which by now they surely did know whenever he said the father, he wasn't speaking of Joseph the carpenter. He was speaking of his heavenly father. Um, Then they knew that the father's house was a reference to heaven. That didn't fit into their earthly plans, you know, for a kingdom, but um, they were getting the picture that most likely he was speaking about heaven. They also knew the way because Jesus himself is the way. They just didn't know it. They were too hung up, just like we said last week, for those of you who were here last week. They were just too hung up with the here and now and with earthly things. They had not been thinking about in terms of, of the end of their lives. You know, they're all young man, men. They're not thinking about the end of their lives. They're not thinking about heavenly matters. They're all stuck on the earth and the here and now. Besides, he had just told them that he would come, he would return, he'd come back and get them, receive them unto himself. But based on Thomas's question there in verse 5, and how can we know the way? That's what Thomas asks him. How can we know the way? It seems that they, that they figured that they didn't want to wait for him to return, to come and take them to the Father's house, wherever that was. He wants to know the way. Why does he want to know the way? Doesn't sound like he wants to wait for the Lord to return and get him, does it? Uh, he wants to know the way because they wanted to follow Jesus to wherever it was he was going before he came back to get them. I hope you're following all that. But it's interesting to me, it's interesting that this time it wasn't Peter who interrupted the Lord, right? Peter, you know, back in chapter 13, uh, look at verse 36. It was Simon Peter. Well, back even when he was washing their feet in in chapter uh, 13, verse 9, it was Simon Peter who spoke up. And, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And then in uh, verse 36, Lord, whither goest thou? And then verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow thee now? It's always been Peter. But notice all of a sudden Peter isn't interrupting. Now it's Thomas's turn. Uh, apparently, the, wo- the Lord's words to Peter about Satan desiring to have him and sift him as wheat, and then the Lord's prediction that Peter would deny him three times that you know before the sun, before the cock crowed three to- uh, twice. Those words had Peter, Simon Peter, sitting very still and quiet. I imagine now he's afraid to say anything. Maybe the next words would be the denial. He didn't know, you know. So Peter is quiet now. Besides, Peter had already asked this question. The same question that Thomas asks, you know, Lord, where are you going? Peter had asked that back in um, verse 36 of John 13. He said, Lord, whither goest thou? That's uh, the same statement. Actually, Thomas makes it as a statement when he says, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. But it's the same, you know, point. And how can we know the way? Jesus had answered Peter's original question. Look at it. John 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said unto the son of the Lord, Lord, whither goest thou? Well, the Lord answered that question, didn't he? He answered it when he told them in chapter 14, I'll tell you where I'm going. I'm going to my father's house and I'm going to prepare the dwelling place. So he'd really already answered the question. 
So it's kind of amazing that, you know, Thomas comes back and says, we don't know where you're going, Lord, and we don't know how to get there. Um, So it's very evident. And if you also will look over at chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, even after the Lord goes on and on and on, when we get to chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, we find that the disciples are still confused. They said, what what does he mean? A little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and because you see me and because I go to the Father. They're still confused. So they're confused. That's the bottom line. They're still confused about exactly where is he going? Why can't we follow him? We don't know the way. We want to know the way because we don't want to wait till he comes back to receive us. We want to go after him quickly, soon. Are you getting it? Now, some commentators that I read really laid into Thomas. You know, poor Thomas. He's always called, he always has that adjective in front of his name, doesn't he? Doubting Thomas. I feel sorry for the guy. You know, made one blunder and he's known forever as Doubting Thomas. Thomas was a twin. Remember that? Because his other name is Didymus. And that means twin. So he either had a twin sister or a twin brother, but he was a Didymus. He was a twin. But some of these commentators just lay into the poor guy. They say things like this, that Thomas was insincere, that he was an unbelie- he was unbelieving, but he was passing it off as ignorance. I think that's mean. I think Thomas was a believer. They say he was rude because he interrupted the Lord. Well, I got to thinking about that. And the, I think the Lord was used to his men. You know, they're interacting here. They're just having an open session. And, and he's used to Peter asking questions. And we're going to see in a little bit, Philip asks the question. And then all the disciples kind of are confused and they ask questions. Even Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas, pops in and asks a question. So they feel comfortable enough with him to ask questions. And he graciously answers. So I don't think that it was rude of Thomas. And and the Lord didn't reprimand him for his question. I don't think he was rude. He was just, you know, Lord, we don't, I don't understand. Where are you going? How do we know the way there? They also say he was arrogantly contradictory to the Lord. The Lord had said they knew, in verse 4, they knew where he was going and they knew the way to get there. But Thomas immediately contradicted both statements when he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. Well, that is, there's no way around it. That is a contradiction, isn't it? Lord said you did know. Don't call him Lord if you contradict him. So that was a contradictory statement, just like Peter had done many times. But then they go on and say he was hypocritical. Uh, because he called Jesus Lord and then contradicted him. And I guess there is a degree of hypocrisy in there. They say he was insulting because basically he was calling Jesus a liar. Jesus said, you know where I'm going? Jesus said, no, we don't. (laughs) They say he was insulting because, oh, I already said that. They say he was presumptuous in speaking for all of the men because notice he said, we, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? And they say he really only further aggravated the troubled hearts of the others. He didn't help at all in their troubled heart situation when he asked his questions. Now, I think all of this is a bit extreme. Uh, Yes, Thomas did interrupt the Lord. And yes, Thomas did even contradict what the Lord had just said. But I don't think it was out of any evil in his heart. And I surely don't believe he was an unbeliever. He had problems with doubt. We do know that. But, uh, you know, because Thomas was living right now by sight only faith, which is the lowest level of faith. But I don't say he was not an evil person. 
And I do believe he spoke for the rest of the men when he said we, as evidenced by Peter's question earlier and the thoughts of all of them over in John chapter 16. And we don't hear any of the other men stepping in to correct Thomas when he said, we don't know the way, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. None of them spoke up and said, wait a minute, Thomas, don't speak for me. I know where he's going. He just told us he's going to the Father's house. And I know the way because he is the way. None of them said that, did they? So I do think he was speaking on behalf of all of them. And uh, I think that Thomas just like Peter, merely wanted to be with the Lord because he truly loved the Lord. Remember back in John eleven sixteen, when uh, the Lord was going to go after four days delay, he was going to go to Bethany to see Lazarus, who was already dead by then. But he told them, they said, Lord, you can't go near Jerusalem. Last time you were there, they wanted to kill you. They wanted to stone you to death. Jesus made it clear, I'm going anyway. Bethany's just two, two miles outside of Jerusalem. And Thomas was the one that spoke up. And what did Thomas say? He said, let us also go that we may die with him. He just wanted to be with the Lord, even if it meant, well, we'll just, you know, give our lives and die with him. All that the Lord had just spoken about his father's house and dwelling places and a personal escort to take his men there, that all of that was just too surreal for Thomas, you know, and his sight-only faith. So he was confused. Yes, he was confused. But I believe the man was truly dedicated. He was a faithful dedicated. He just wanted to be where the Lord was. Maybe, you know, I try to get in their minds and think, well, maybe he thought that the Lord was speaking about some other earthly house that they just didn't know about yet. After all, they probably knew that Jesus had spent a couple years of his life as a young lad, toddler, in another country called what? Egypt. They knew he had lived in Egypt as a boy. Well, maybe... While they were there in Egypt, maybe his carpenter father, Joseph, had built a house in Egypt that they knew nothing about. And maybe the Lord, since things were getting really pressurized there and the religious rulers were really after him, and maybe he was thinking of going to another city or some other place than Jerusalem and Israel in order to wait for things to settle down a little bit. And then when things settled down, maybe he'd come back to Jerusalem and set up his kingdom. Could that be? I don't know. Maybe Thomas is thinking like that. Maybe not. Or maybe Thomas did indeed understand that Jesus was talking about his death. And thus, his statement was essentially to the Lord. Lord, our knowledge of things stops at death. You know, there's a veil after that. We don't know what lies beyond death. And uh, we don't have a map to get to the Father's house. So we don't know the way there. We don't know, Lord, where heaven is. And so what are we going to do when we die? How do we get there? I'm glad I don't have to worry about that, aren't you? When I die, I don't know the way to heaven. I think it's up. (laughs) But I don't have a GPS that I can (laughs) punch in heaven. (laughs) That'd be awful for my soul to just wander around the universe looking for heaven (laughs) and maybe you know maybe he's thinking like we don't know what how to get there lord so these are all possible thoughts i don't know where his mind was but regardless of the rights and the wrongs of thomas's interruption and his contradictory statement 
I think that the man was being honest. He was being honest. He sincerely wanted to know where Jesus was going and how he could follow him. And those are questions that I really wish a whole lot more people were asking, don't you? (laughs) Where did the Lord Jesus go? He resurrected from the dead. Where did he go and how do I get there where he went? I want to know the way. I wish people were asking that question. One thing I can say about Thomas is he took his question to the right source, didn't he? He took this question to Jesus. A lot of other people are just talking to one another. You know, they're talking to each other, and they don't. none of them have the answers, and so they simply, we don't know where God is. Um, actually, we don't even know if God really exists. Um, but we can, should just each seek him the best way we can. And every man, you know, needs to discover his own way and hope, hope that he finds the right one. At least Thomas took his question to the right source. Thomas did right by bringing his confusion to the Lord Jesus because he is the only way to find answers to life's most serious questions. Actually, we can be very glad for Thomas's interruption here, can't we? Because Thomas's question brought forth the triple glorious I am statement that constitutes one of the greatest and most dogmatic utterances ever to come from the lips of the Savior. How did Jesus answer Thomas? Again, let's practice. Let's all say it together. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, I even learned it in Spanish. En español. (laughs) Jesús dice, yo soy el camino, la verdad y la vida. Nadie viene al Padre sino por mí. Juan 14, 6. Did I say it right? Muy bien. <laughs> That's so if I meet someone Spanish, at least I could say that to them. Jesus is not only the way to the Father's house, he is the truth about the Father, and he is the life of the Father. Only a person who has the gift of life, eternal life, can come to the Father. Jesus said he's not only the way to the Father, he would also provide as a free gift the truth about and the life of the Father. I just heard Adrian Rogers. Do you ever hear him on BBN? Oh, man, that guy is good. He's, he's with the Lord now, but I love that man's preaching. Oh, and he said something. He said I had to write it down on a napkin. Here, I was driving, writing on a napkin. I don't text, but I do write. <laughs> he said, um, He said, salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It is a gift for the guilty. Think about that. Aren't you glad it's not a reward for the righteous because there is none righteous? No, not one. It's a gift for the guilty. We're all sinners. It's a free gift. He uh, would provide as a free gift the truth about the Father and the life of the Father. He made it abundantly clear that he is the exclusive one and only way to the Father when he said, no man comes to the Father but by me. You know, there's a large difference between pointing the way to a particular place. Have you ever stopped and asked for directions? We're women, so we do that. It's just the men that don't, you know. You stop and you ask directions, um, and you have somebody point the way. You know, you go up ten blocks second light, you turn left, and by the time they're finished, I'm so directionally challenged, I'm really going the opposite direction in my mind. But then have you had someone that'll actually say, I'll take you there? And, you know, 
in, in like in a store or something. They'll take you right to where you want to go. That's, th- there's a difference between pointing the way and taking someone there personally. Now, I read this little story in Dr. John Phillips' book on um, John, and I wanted to share it with you because I thought it was so good. He tells about a missionary, a pioneer missionary, a brand-new missionary who went to Africa, and he was going to take the gospel to a new tribe way up in the north of the African country. And he had bearers, you know, carrying all his trunks and everything. When he arrived at a certain village... His, his bearers, those who were carrying all his luggage, would not go any further. They said, this is it, this is as far as we go. So the missionary appealed to the local chief of that particular little village and said, is there someone in your village who could act as my guide to the far distant village I want to go? You know, he, was, he knew where he was going, but he didn't know the way. So he said, do you have a guide here? And the chief immediately summoned a very tall, big, battle-scarred, man carrying a large axe in his hand and they made a bargain uh you know the man missionary would pay this guy so much to take him to this tribe he wanted to go to so uh they set off early the next morning going through the bush and he was following his new guide but as they proceeded the way became increasingly rough and the path you know (laughs) narrowed and narrowed and eventually it all but disappeared There was an occasional, he noticed occasionally there'd be a little mark on a tree, um, but that was about it. And, you know, it was so narrow and so bushy, and and finally the the missionary asked the guide if he was sure he knew the way. He was thinking, "Uh uh-oh, we're getting lost here. And then he said, the man pulled himself up to his full height, and he said, white man, you see this axe in my hand? You see these scars on my body? With this axe, I blaze the trail to the tribal village to which we go. I am from that tribal village. These scars I received when I made the way. You asked me if I know the way. Before I came, there was no way. I am the way. Don't you like that? I love that. Christ had come from his father's house in heaven. He was now on his way back which would be by way of the cross. Before he came, there was no way from earth to heaven for man. Remember I told you? That's why heaven isn't talked about in the Old Testament because before Jesus, no one went to heaven. They went to, you know, the paradise compartment of Hades. Uh, The scars and the nail holes on the Lord's body attest to the price he made He paid to blaze that trail for us to God. He doesn't just point the way, does he? He is the way. When the Lord said, I am the way, he likely would have been thinking in his mind, since he wrote this, of Isaiah chapter 35. Would you go there, please? Isaiah chapter 35. I want you to look at verses 8 to 10. This is marvelous. When Jesus said, I am the way, he very likely was thinking of Isaiah 35 verses 8 to 10. Now, before I read that for you, I want to take you through this amazing passage of the Scripture from the Old Testament and show you how it speaks of, listen to this. This isn't in your notes, so you might want to jot down a few little things here. This shows us, it speaks of a special way, the special way, which is called a highway. The highway of holiness, actually, it's called here. It speaks of the special way, which is a reference to a highway that was made for a king. You know, they had...
paths back in Old Testament days, but they would have a special highway that they would make for a king and for members of the king's family. And that's what this speaks of, a special highway for the king and the king's family. So it speaks of a special way. It also speaks of the saintly, separated way, because it is a way of holiness where nothing unclean ever passes on it. Nothing unclean ever walks on it. So it's a special way. It's a saintly, separated way. It also speaks of a simple way. Because it goes on and says that even simple common folk, wayfaring men, you'll notice that expression, can walk on it. Those who have been brought into the king's favor, he will allow simple folk to walk on this separated way. So it's a simple way. It's also described as a sure way because there is no error on this highway. So it is a sure way. And Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of it as the safe way. And that's not a grocery store. The safe way. There's no lions on this way or ravenous beasts stalking about, seeking whom they may devour on this king's highway. And it is also the salvation way. Because Isaiah says that the redeemed shall walk on this way of holiness. So it's the salvation way. And as the redeemed walk, guess what they're doing? They're singing and they have everlasting joy because they are the ransomed of the Lord. So it's also a singing way, a singing way. And guess what else it is? A sorrowless way. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So let me review. It's a special way because it's a king's highway. It's a saintly way because the ransom of the Lord walk on it. It's a separated way because it's a way of holiness. It's a simple way because even common folk can walk on it. Even though it's for a king, common folk brought into the favor of the king can walk on it. It's a sure way because there's no error allowed on it. It's a safe way. No lions, no ravenous beasts are allowed on it. And it is also the salvation way because it is for the redeemed to walk there and the ransom of the Lord. And it is a singing way. And a sorrowless way. Is that enough S's for you? (laughs) Now let's read it, and I hope you'll understand it better. Read with me, starting at verse 8. And an highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called, what? The way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, that's the common person, though fools... And aren't we all really fools? You know, not many righteous, not many mighty, not many bright. (laughs) But uh, it's a way for the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. No error on this way. It's a sure way. No lion shall be there. No Satan. Nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there. Nothing dangerous there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You know what this way is speaking of? 
Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way of holiness, isn't he? Isn't that beautiful? I had never seen that before. It was hidden away, wasn't it? In Isaiah 35, maybe some of you saw it, but I had my eyes open this week. The Lord's John 14, 6 statement answered the three greatest questions of man, the first of which is, how can I be saved? His answer, I am the way. How can I be saved? I am the way. He says he is the one and only one who spans the distance between God and sinful man. Now, men have attempted to build many ladders, haven't they, to God, you know, through their own work, starting with the Tower of Babel, to build their own way to get to God, but their ladders actually head in the totally opposite direction. All their ladders that they climb to try to get to God merely lead them where? To hell. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, right? All these men have their own ideas about how they're going to climb their ladder to get to God, whether it's Buddha or Muhammad or, you know, whatever way it is. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways, notice, of death, plural. There's only one right way. There are many plural wrong ways. The ways of death are many. The truth of the whole issue is that sinners could never come to God on their own. No ladder you could build would ever get you there. God had to come down to man, didn't he? That's the only way we could ever get to know him. He had to come down to us. Like I said, I don't have a GPS to get me to him. He had to come down, which he did in the person of his son. He is the only ladder to God. He is the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder, isn't he? You know, Jacob had a vision of a ladder with angels ascending and descending. That ladder was Jesus Christ. There is only one mediator between God and men, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is significant to know that in the early church, as we can see in the book of Acts, you know what they used to call Christianity? It was known as the way. Christianity was known as the way. The John 14, 6 statement also answers the question, not only how can I be saved, but how can I be sure? How can you be sure? Well, Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the truth. Because he is truth incarnate, we can fully trust his statement that he is the way. (laughs) You can be sure that he's the way because he's also the truth. And he wouldn't speak anything but the truth when he said he's the way. You following my logic? You know, the best class I ever took in college besides typing was logic. I took a class on logic, and I use that almost every week when I study the Bible. And I think about my lost professor. He should have used his logic (laughs) for the Bible. But I love that logic class. It made a lot of logic to me. (laughs) But um, because he is truth incarnate, we can trust his statement that he's the way. Not only um, did he speak the truth, but he taught the truth. Jesus Christ was and is the truth. He's the communicator of the truth. In just a few more hours... From where we are now in our study of the Lord's final day, he would be speaking to a man called Pontius Pilate. And he would say to Pontius Pilate this, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. And remember Pilate's famous question that he asked very sarcastically? What is truth? Everyone that is of the truth, Jesus said, heareth my voice. If you're of the truth, you hear his voice and you know he's the truth. Also, being the truth says that Jesus is holy and he is pure. He is the personification personification of integrity. In him is all that is eternal and absolute, which is why he said, I am the truth, and was then able to add 
the dogmatic, rigid words, intolerant words, no man comes to the Father but by me. He could say that because he's truth, and that is truth. Now that is the leading statement. No man comes to the Father but by me. That is the leading statement made by Jesus, even more than when he said, the Father and I are one. This statement of John 14, 6, is, it ruffles the feathers of non-Christians unlike any other thing that Jesus ever said. How? How could Jesus be so assertive and so inflexible as to say that he is truth and nobody comes to God except by him? How arrogant of him. Well, maybe it sounds to the unbeliever like arrogance, but it is not arrogance when it is true. It's not arrogant when it's true. It might have sounded arrogant when Jesus said the Father and I are one probably did you know that's what infuriated the pharisees because how presumptuous how blasphemous but it isn't arrogant when it's true if there ever existed a person who could have been arrogant it would have been jesus right he had a he could have been arrogant because he's the creator I mean, he, we wouldn't be here without him. He could have been arrogant, and yes, you know, because he is very God of very God, and yet no one has ever lived who has been more humble and more kind-hearted and compassionate. The problem for unbelievers is that he always spoke the truth. Always spoke the truth. A lot of people don't like truth, do they? You ever tried to give somebody the truth? I'll, sometimes I don't like to hear the truth, especially when it comes to my children. <laughs> hmm. I guess if, if <laughs> I guess we would have to say if that's our logic, you know, um, that he was arrogant because he spoke the truth. I guess then we'd have to say that all truth, no matter what realm we're speaking of, is therefore always intolerant and very rigid and dogmatic and arrogant. For example, how dare the mathematicians say that three times three is nine and only nine. Isn't that intolerant? Isn't that arrogant? Isn't that very narrow-minded? Yes, it is. Because truth is always exclusive. It is error that is broad. Many ways that lead to damnation. You know, truth is very narrow. There's only one right answer for three times three. What is it? Nine. Two plus two is, trying to teach my little five-year-old grand, two plus two is four. When he says five, sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to be my grandchild? <laughs> but truth is exclusive. It's error that's broad. Any other number in existence, you know, all the way from zero to billions and trillions would be error for three. the answer to three times three. Since the Lord Jesus is the truth, he excludes all error. No matter how popular or how politically correct or how convincing a pro a proponents of other religions might be, they're excluded because they're not Christ, there, you know, he excludes all error. When he says he is the truth and no man comes to the Father but by him, that rules out all the other world's religions, period. I remember being in a mainline denominational church and sitting in a Sunday school class, and the elder of the church was teaching the Sunday school, and he said, you know, I've been thinking.
thinking a lot lately, which was dangerous for this man. But uh, he said, you know, who are we to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? You know, that's not really very fair. Maybe he's the only way for the Western Hemisphere. But maybe for the Eastern Hemisphere, it is Muhammad or Buddha or some. And I'm sitting there, a brand new Christian. And I'm going, <laughs> wrong answer. <laughs> and I took him to this verse. Now, I didn't know much scripture at all at that time. I was a baby Christian. And I said, well, what about when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You know what he did? He just dismissed it. Just dismissed it. Yeah, well, you know. I don't know what he said. I can't remember. I was so mad. My adrenaline was pumping. Anyway, that's the, that's that's out there, ladies. It's it's prevalent everywhere. Oh, but truth is narrow. Um, you can argue and you can scoff, like Pilate, you know, who who uh, would have fit right into today's modern mindset when he sarcastically asked, you know, asked, "What is truth? Who can know what truth is?" He would have fit in today, wouldn't he? Uh, so you can argue and you can scoff, but when you find out. That you are wrong, will the risk have been worth it? That's a good question to ask somebody. When you find out you're wrong, will the risk have been worth it? Hmm, just ask Pilate. Was it worth it? Well, the third human question besides how can I be saved, how can I be sure, the third question that this I am statement answers is how can I be satisfied? How can you be satisfied? He is the life. I am the life. He said in Greek, the word life is zoe. You've heard a little girl's name zoe. Their name means life. It's where we get the word zoo. Zoe. It speaks of life in all of its forms. Uh, zoe speaks of the life of God himself. Down to the most little, you know, tiniest microscopic organism. Jesus is the complete opposite of death. He is life. He has created life, life from nothing. He's always existed. He's life from nothing. He made everything from nothing. How'd you like to do that? Make everything from nothing. That's called ex nihilo. He's created life. He's also resurrection life. Life from death. The one who believes in Christ has passed out of death into life. You know why you can never die? You know why right now if you're saved you have eternal life? Because you've received the one who is eternal life and he lives within you. You now have eternal life because you have Christ in you who is life. He is eternal life. We never die. Absent from the body, present with the... Only the bodies die. And then they're resurrected one day. But we do not ever lose consciousness immediately from this world to the next. Isn't that comforting? Had Jesus ever said that he was the life before? Yes. Remember? Outside Lazarus' tomb, he's talking to Martha, and he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. So this is the second time he said he's the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Oh, I love that verse, John eleven twenty five. Talk about trouble for... Uh, Comfort for troubled hearts? Just remember that one. Believe in him. Even though you're dead, you'll live. You see, we can't die when we have eternal life. Well, after making his triple glorious I am statement, I am the way, the truth, and life, the Lord made it clear as possible that he is the only way to come to God, um, that man can come to God. Uh, A lot of people complain that a God of love, you hear this, a God of love would not be so restrictive, 
How can a God of love eliminate so many people from heaven? God is love, the scripture says, doesn't it? God is love. That is his main, well, he's holy, he's love. But love personifies God. He is love personified. So how can a loving God send so many people to hell? You know, that just doesn't, they they, they don't get that. But again, here's the logic. Okay, think through this with me. It's illogical with the nature of genuine love. You see, a God of love would never leave man in the dark, ever seeking and unable to know for sure the right way to get to him. A God of love is bound by his own absolute love to show men the way to himself. You know, the world would say, well, he's too restrictive to say he's the only way. But he's restrictive because he is the God of love, so he's going to show us the way, tell us the way, give us the way. If he wasn't a God of love, he would let men do what they're doing today, floundering around in the dark trying to find their own way. But he's a God of love, so he told us the way, he showed us the way, he gave us the way. You get it? Okay? Also, a God of love is bound by his absolute love to show man the truth. He would not leave man in the dark, searching here and there and everywhere for the truth. So he wrote the truth in his written word, and he sent the truth in the living word, his son. So we would know the truth. A God who wasn't bound by love would just let men flounder and look for the truth themselves. He made it clear because he loves us. He gave us the truth, and he gave us his son. And then, too, God is bound by his absolute love to show man the life of himself and how to have that life. He would not leave man wandering hopelessly to find eternal life by himself. So he sent his life in Christ who gave his life for man that man may share in his eternal life forever. That's what a God of love does. He shows man the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I want to close. I know I've kept you a little bit, but this is a remarkable picture of Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, which is pictured for us in the tabernacle, the three entrances. I don't know if you have a map of the tabernacle in the back of your Bibles. I happen to have one right here. probably should have made a copy for you, but if you look at the tabernacle was the pattern God gave for... um, the Israelites as they're wandering in the wilderness. You know, picture this world as the wilderness. We're living in the wilderness. And then he told them to build this tabernacle. He told them exactly how to build it. The whole tabernacle speaks of Christ. But this is, he's explaining the way to himself in the tabernacle. Now, there were three gates um, to get to the Holy of Holies. Three gates. The sinner was to approach the tabernacle in the wilderness by coming first to the outer gate. Now, here's the perimeter of the temple. Here's the outer gate. It was, it was wide, and it was left open. It was wide open gate, signifying the invitation to enter in. Then, and, and that, when you went in to that main open gate, that led directly to the altar. That was the first thing they'd come to was the altar, and then after, the, right behind the altar was the laver, you know, the big laver with the water in it. To picture, you know, first salvation at the, at the altar, salvation, and then the laver pictures our daily cleansing, washing, you know, we need to be kept in fellowship, daily washing. So that signifies um, cleansing from sin and peace with God. 
All right, that's in the outer court, the open gate to go into the outer court. That's where you're, you're saved. You know, the person who enters in basically is a, is a saved person, goes to the altar, so he's saved. Then he has his daily washing with the Lord. Well, then came the door, and it was actually called a door. The other one was a gate. The next one was a door, and it went into the holy place. That door was half as wide as the outer gate, but it was double in height. So it was much narrower to go into the holy place, but it was a real, real tall door. And uh, those who went in were far less than those who were in the outer court. Only only the priesthood could go into the, the next door. It represented a higher spiritual place of truth, represented by the lampstand that was in the holy place. You know, it was a big lampstand promising illumination. And, you know, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. World, It's a picture of Jesus. And the showbread, the bread on the table, which offers fellowship, and the golden altar indicating communion and intercession. But these are, I won't get into all that, but these are representing spiritual, higher spiritual truths that are gained and understood by those who never progress through that second door. You know, a lot of people are just saved, okay? Are you following? They just get into the tabernacle through, through the wide open gate, invitation, you know, the way. That first gate is the way. And they get in there and they're saved and they're satisfied with that. And they don't get into any deeper truths. They don't enter through the truth door. And, you know, have illumination from the Word of God and greater fellowship with the showbread and intercession with God represented by the altar, you know, communicating with God and having a warmer truth and all that that comes with a deeper walk with the Lord. But then there's a third door, and it was actually called the veil. There's the gate, the door, and the veil. Beyond this veil was the holy of holies where very few ever penetrated. In here was the mystery of life. The cherubim covering the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled. The Ark of the Covenant which contained the pot of manna, the unbroken tablets of the law, and the rod of Aaron with its buds, blossoms, and almonds. All speaking of the even deeper things of Christ. And over all that was what? The Shekinah glory of the Shekinah glory cloud, which was the earthly dwelling place of the Father himself. It was the Father's house, really, when he dwelled here with man. So I really wish I had time to develop all that, but it's amazing. Three gates are pictured, pictures of Christ. The outer gate was the way to salvation and cleansing. And it was the way to the door to deeper truth, which led also to the inner Holy of Holies where God dwelt, where you could really have intimacy with him, led to life. So it was the way, the truth, and the life. All of them picture Jesus Christ. And I'm not just making that that up. Just listen to this from Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20. It says this, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, God's presence. You know, when that veil rent, when Jesus was crucified, the way opened up, the way, the truth, and the life opened up. We can boldly enter into the presence of God, can't we? 
I mean, amazing. He says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, God's presence, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. He is that way. Which he has consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, through his flesh. Amen. That's fantastic. Thank you. I'm so glad you really seem to follow me. Most of you followed me today, okay? If not, get the tape. you got a long time. It's going to be two months before we meet again. I'm going to miss you guys. <laughs> Stay in touch. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving and a great Christmas. And remember, the reason for the season is Jesus. Let's pray. Yes? Oh, okay. If you don't have a tabernacle in the back to look at. None of this was in your notes. I'm sorry. This was just stuff studied this week. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you that you so love the world that you gave your only begotten Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life, so that whosoever believes in him would never perish but have everlasting life spent in your house, in the dwelling places that Jesus is even now preparing for us. Thank you, too, for the blessed hope that we have that he can come in any one moment in time. You know, perhaps even before we meet again in January, wouldn't that be wonderful to continue this study in your presence? Lord, we thank you. We love you. And we just pray we can be witnesses for you during this holiday season. And may we all return safely and ready and refreshed to study your word again. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.